Please take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 50. We'll be looking at verses 15 through 26. As we finally complete, I guess, our two and a half year trek through Genesis. Uh, 50 chapters worth. Genesis chapter 2, I mean, sorry, 50. I don't know why I said 2. 50 verses 15 through 26. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years and Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died being 110 years old. They embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. The grass, grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight today, in and through Christ Jesus, by the power of your word and spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, and for his glory we pray. Amen. This passage is mainly about leading the way to life. Of course, Jesus himself said that he is the life itself. And we'll see that, that by his very nature, he is what life comes from. So do you believe this? Do you believe this at the core of your heart? You know, today, all that has to be said is to believe, isn't it? As long as you believe it, it's true for you, right? How crazy is that? It must be, there must be a correspondence between reality and what you think and hear, or you're just going to be bumping into things all along and you'll be wondering, why the heck do I keep screwing up? What you have to ask is, is what you believe worthy of believing? Does it fit with the truth and with reality? And if you believe, what is the big deal anyway? In order to believe the way you need to believe, there has to be a radical change in your nature. Radical, which means not like the kids being today, just cool. Maybe, maybe 20 years ago. 
not today. Radical means at the root, at the heart. There needs to be massive change, which leads to trust, a change in nature for these beliefs to mean anything at all. Here, God's covenant blessing means that he leads his people to life from death. That you have to see what you live in and what you were born into this world in is death all around you. Do you want life? Well, how do we follow God's path to life from death? Well, we follow God's path to life from death by first confessing and listening, as we see demonstrated here, and then finally by counting and looking. First, we follow God's path to life from death by confessing and listening. And the takeaway here is focus on God's covenant of grace and take notes. First of all, confessing, verses 15 to the beginning of verse 17. These boys are in trouble. Remember what these boys did to Joseph, right? They were gonna kill him. But then their brother convinces them to put him in a pit and then make up this lie about uh, him getting attacked by an animal so they can tell their father put the, of kill an animal, put blood on his, his nice coat that his father gave him, and then uh, they could tell their father that he was killed by an animal. But notice, you got on the one hand with these boys, fear-driven lies, and on the other hand, actual, maybe if halfway, confessions of their sin. First on the one hand, fear-driven lies. Verse 15, they're afraid, Right? They're afraid now, now that Jacob is gone, their daddy, uh-oh, Joseph's got all the power. He is pretty much in the place of Pharaoh with everything except for the throne of Egypt. He is basically the mouthpiece of the king. Whatever he says is the word of Pharaoh. They should be afraid. They should be very afraid. Just like we should be afraid of God. Because we're enemies. We're his enemies and he doesn't sit well with enemies. You haven't noticed in his word. He does not sit well with enemies. He's a God of justice. When you have something bad done to you, right? That you think is bad because you think it's bad. What do you want? You want justice, don't you? It's not fair. That's the words that come out of your mouth. Well, what about God on an eternal level? What about him? Doesn't he deserve the same kind of justice we demand for our little puny things? So yeah, they ought to be afraid of Joseph. He's got power and he can do something with it. And look at what they say. Maybe it's payback time for him, right? And then verses 16 and 17, they concoct this story. It's presumably a story. He, Jacob might've said this, but I'm kind of doubting it. Your father, and look at the words that you command the God of your father, please forgive two times in verse 17. So you got on the one hand, fear driven, Lies, but on the other hand, actual if halfway confessions. Rec they had a recognition that they had, quote unquote, done evil in verse 15. They really do want forgiveness, verse 17. And they have these interchangeable words for iniquity or sin. They use the word transgression twice, sin and evil to call what they've done what it was. Exactly what it was. Now, Joseph, if you followed along with this story, he's always been after their hearts, always. He just knows that they need some tough medicine to get to those hearts, right? There's a story I heard of a gangster who came to receive Christ 
And uh, he was up telling his testimony in front of the church one day and he, he was weeping and he said, uh, there was this guy on the subway and he was really bothering bother me. And I, so I took out my gun and I shot his kneecap off. And he's weeping. He's just like, a year ago I would have killed him. Growth and grace, right? <laughs> it's kind of what Joseph is dealing with here. So there's confessing, and then they, you got to listen. Listen to the heart of Joseph, because Joseph is the savior figure in this story. And what's the heart of Joseph? How, look at how they almost missed what he was doing and saying. He was weeping at the end of verse 17. Was he weeping for himself? No, you'll see in a minute. He was sad that it had to come, come to pass through this process. They hated him like we hate God. We're born with a natural hatred of God. They left him for dead. Jesus was left for dead. And, and even, even left for dead, what did they do immediately after they left him in the pit? They sat down, they had their lunch together. That's the kind of guys these people were. That they could eat messing around with the life of their youngest brother. They lied to their father about him and about it. And now in Egypt, there's death all around them. It's a culture of death and false worship. And Joseph is also sad because they don't know his redemptive heart. Now, I'm sure he's happy they're at least acknowledging what they did. But they're still scared after all the signs that Joseph has done. Look, at, I'm just going to list some of them. He didn't kill Benjamin. He sent good gifts home with them. He fed them in his house near his table. He got them settled in the land of Goshen where they could live and thrive during a time of famine because he had the wisdom from God to save all that food so Egypt and the land of Canaan wouldn't, wouldn't suffer during the famine. Listen, what would you have said if you had a chance in verse 18 to them? After all they had done to me, I'd want to go, booyah, I'm in charge. Get ready. Right? But no, what does he do? You see, here's the thing. Truly righteous people don't care about winning the argument. They fight for and care about winning people to the truth. Look at 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. Love is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. That is the heart of a person who's arguing and fighting for people. And by the way, I'm arguing with myself and y'all every time I'm up here. Because that's what God's doing with us. He's trying to woo us more and more into the depths of his heart, like Joseph is doing with his brothers here. Look at what Jesus says about how we're to go after a brother who sinned against us. When we want to cry justice, what does he say? If your brother sins against you, he doesn't say paper it over, act like it didn't happen, sweep it under the rug, right? He says, if your brother sins, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, what's the goal? You have gained your brother not you have won the argument. You have gained your brother. That's the heart of Joseph 
here. It's the same heart of Jesus. So it's sad that many times we don't see the Father's redemptive heart. How he, you know what redeeming is? It's what you do with slaves. You redeem them by buying them for yourself or buying their freedom. That's the redemption that God is doing here. See, God sent his only son in the world to save, not condemn Jesus. In the famous passage, you should know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And then catch this, for God did not send his son into, this, into the world to condemn the world, though that will come. And yes, it's worthy of condemnation, meaning all of us. But in order that the world might be saved through him. Look at the Father's redemptive heart and his great giving of love. What was the result of Christ's death and his, his life, perfect life on our behalf to take our sinful record and give us his righteous record and then to take our sins on the cross and suffer for them? But what happens as a result? First John 3, 1 See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is because it did not know him. And that's what we were before we came to Christ. Look at the heart of Jesus on the cross. Jesus, Luke 23, 34. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Finally, not finally, but look. Look at the sum. God the sum. He says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask of the father in my name, he may give it to you, give it to you. He's working everything for you in your life, in your Christian life. And there's life upon life. This is what I meant about the very nature of Christ is life. For John 1, 4, in him was life. And that life was the light of men. These people are coming to Egypt to stay alive because there's a famine and death all around. There's death all around. We fear death all around. But Jesus, standing in the center of the universe, is going, come to me for life and life abundant. Now, it doesn't mean he won't judge. If you're not in Christ, Christ is the judge. Death and hell comes to its final result. John, and why? Because of the very nature of our hearts. John 3, 18 through 21. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Belief here is not just, oh yeah, I believe it happened. I believe stuff about Jesus. This is belief in him. Are you going after the same heart that he's coming after you with? And if you're not, then you're already condemned. There's nothing more you can do except throw yourself on the mercy of Christ. That's it. By the way, he loves to show mercy. So do that. And this is the judgment, Jesus says, that light has come into the world and what people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. What does the light do to evil works? It exposes them. You are exposed by the light of Christ. 
For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And why is that? For Christ's redemption to mean anything, it is a change from status as children of wrath to being made alive together with Christ. This passage is about life. Life in the Savior. Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Now that doesn't mean that you don't have any thoughts about God. It means that your heart is set against Him. And when your heart is set against Him, there is nothing you can do to change that. You can't turn over a new leaf. There's no, there's no way and no hope at all. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince and power of the air. There's so much working against you to keep you locked in. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That's the prince and power of the air. The sons of disobedience, not caring what God says in his law. Turning a cold shoulder to God when, when all of a sudden his law begins to put the squeeze on you. By the way, when I say you, I'm talking to me too. And then he says, among whom you once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. By nature, Paul says, that God must show his wrath to you by your nature. This is why I said, throw yourself on the mercy of God. But God, verse four, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us. It'd have to be love that motivated this, isn't it? Even when we were dead in our trespasses, even when we were like that, he made us alive together with Christ by grace, by grace, by sheer favor of God, based on nothing you do or could ever do. You are loved and received in the mercy of Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Now, We're talking about listening here. Look at how he heard them, verses 19 through 21. First of all, in verse 19, we have the ultimate, uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, we have the ultimate context that they're facing their fear, right? And how does Joseph deal with it? Do not fear. Verse 19, verse 21. He wraps this message of not fearing. It's like a do not fear sandwich. He's acknowledging, yeah, you should be afraid, but don't fear. Because that's not what I have in mind for you. It's never what I've had in mind for you. I wanted to come to this moment so badly so that you could see the power of God at work for you. Even when you were like that. And the broader context, verse 20, God is at work. I love this passage. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. You may think you're getting away with it. And you may think you're slipping one past God, but you're not getting one past the goalie on this one. You're not. He sees all. He knows all. And what you mean for evil, God is working out for good. Right? Do not fear. God meant it for good. Why? Because God wanted to save you. To bring about where I got lost my place. But God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be what? Kept alive in the midst of death and judgment on the world. 
as they are today. And what you see here is how much more God is committed to you than you are committed to him. He's even taking your sin and leading you right into his green pastures. Hebrews 7.25 says, Consequently, he is able, meaning Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives, always lives to make intercession for them. His whole heart is to stand up for you, not because God is angry with you, but to say to you that though you should fear God and though he should condemn you, he stands up to his father and his father says, I am well pleased with my son and the work that he's done. And the father says, yes, me and all these that I've brought with me. You want to be riding to heaven, not on your own, because you won't ever make it. You'll be in the other place. You want to ride on the coattails of Christ. He ever lives to intercede for you. His goal is to save you to the uttermost, to the last drop, like the old Folgers coffee. So what are you to do with that? Well, focus on God's covenant of grace and take notes. Covenant means a bond. God is bonding with you through grace. He doesn't normally bond with sinners, but when he has his grace in effect, he bonds with people like us. Go through the scriptures looking for the word covenant sometime and see how often God's saving redemptive actions are emphasized vis-a-vis man's actions. More so God's saving actions than man's actions. Secondly, go through your life and note how many times you thought you might have lost it all only to find God's gracious care for you many times in very distinct ways. Thirdly, ask the Lord to give you wisdom to see how he's been at work in very specific ways to lead you into life-giving rather than life-vacuuming ways. So the main idea here is that God's covenant blessing means he leads his people to life from death. So how do we follow God's path to life from death? We follow God's path to life from death first by confessing and listening and then finally by counting and looking. The application, the takeaway here, focus on God's covenant fulfillment and walk confidently. You see, he bound himself by covenant here through Jacob and then through Judah, actually one of the other brothers, to bring about the birth of Christ, if he's done all that in history before, he can still walk, and he is still walking with you in your history right now. First of all, counting verses 22 through 23. See the sum of, of, of Joseph's life in verse 22. He remained in Egypt. See, God intends to bless the world. Think about the first generation readers of this text. Moses wrote this. What were they? They were the Exodus generation. When a Pharaoh rose up, rose up that didn't know who Joseph was. And the readers are asking the question, why were we enslaved in Egypt? Well, in order to bless the world or to be the conduit of his cursing, depending because God's blessed people, the ones who are blessed being around, can either bring out the worst or the best in others. And others may want to know what's going on with them. So either the blessings or the cursings of God become manifest when we, are, when we are around. And all of the brothers remained there for the whole time. And another set up here, he lived 110 years. 
So he is the second youngest brother of all of them, and he dies before all of them. Sound familiar? God the Son dies on behalf and his disciples remain living. Now, he talks about, make sure you get my bones, right? Well, let's talk of time and of tombs. Because you go through time, you hit the tomb, but what comes after that? Well, for a time, it's a spiritless, I mean, it's a bodiless spirit only existence, either in heaven or hell. And then there's a resurrection coming with real physical bodies that will either spend life in heaven with Jesus physically or life in hell, experiencing God's justice. We are experiencing God's justice in heaven. It's just that Jesus worked it out for us. What are you doing? He is using his rule and looking out for his brothers, the ones who falsely understood, misunderstood him. And yet he was always faithful to them. He never wavered. Does that sound like anybody? Living as a prisoner, helping Pharaoh through a crisis, getting his family saved. And he dies before his brothers to save them. You see, God can kind of walk and chew gum. This is real history. These things really happen. In fact, well, first of all, he saved them and he went away. John 14, one through three says, Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. He wants you to be with him. Well, what's to become of God's covenant legacy? What lives on after you? Your children do. If you don't have children, you have spiritual children, people you can influence. Remember in Genesis 15, 5? And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and, the num and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. See, God wants a whole people for himself. And the most natural way to do that is through godly families reproducing. There's a song that came out not too many years ago. Well, maybe it was many years ago, depending on your perspective, how old you are. It was by a group called One Republic called Counting Stars. And I think a lot of people might have been Wondering, what in the world is this thing talking about? Instead of counting dollars, we'll be counting stars, it says. Well, the, the lead singer is, this, I believe, a nephew of a PCA pastor and their PCA church members in the band. Of course, he's referring to this part of Genesis 15. Count the stars. What does that mean? Instead of counting dollars, we'll be counting stars. Um, it's, it's talking about God's kingdom versus man's kingdom. You can't serve God and mammon. You can't serve God and money. Jesus says in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters for either. He will hate the one or love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money, which is the, what is the most basic way of looking beyond yourself toward God? What's gonna get you outside of yourself? Your children. Your children cost you money. They cost you time. They cost you energy. They cost you gray hair. Because you're losing hair, right? 
He says, uh, in the song, Counting Stars, he says, I feel something so wrong doing the right thing. I feel something so right doing the wrong thing. I couldn't lie. Everything that kills me makes me feel alive. Talking about our sinful condition. But then he says, uh, I've been praying hard. Said no more counting dollars. We'll be counting stars. Your children in Christ is what it's talking about. So you're counting, but then you're looking. You're looking forward beyond death and heaven in verses 24 and 25. How did Joseph know that God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham? Well, God told Abraham for one thing. But that's what God is after. It's what he's been after all along. And so he's saying they're going to go to this uh, promised land and then he makes them swear on an on an oath, a covenant that that when God will surely visit you and you shall carry my bones out to go into the land because that's where it's all going to be lived out. The land is like a lab where we work out what this means, the salvation and this working of God's covenant is binding to his people, even to their children. Uh, Exodus 3, 13, 19, Moses, look at what happened. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear saying, God will surely visit you and you should carry my bones up from here. Joshua talks about the bones of Israel being brought, brought up. Uh, and then Hebrews 11.32 says, By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. What's he talking about? He's looking for the resurrection where it's all going to be wrapped up. And then in verse 26, finally, apart from the body, we are present with Christ. He's placed, he has died being 110 years and they embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. It's interesting. They found a a tomb where there is uh, a man of different coloring than than Egyptians and he's got multiple colors on his vestment. Could that be the tomb of Joseph? That they actually found, archaeologists have found this. Well, what he is talking about here is take me there because, listen, I'm sure he didn't know who Christ was, but I know that God's going to do this. He's going to visit, just so he visit us in Christ. Paul says, yes, we are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. When we die, we go be at home with the Lord and then God brings about this resurrection at the end of time. So focus on God's covenant fulfillment by his binding to his people, he fulfills it in Christ and then walk confidently because God has bound himself to this. Now we're kind of stuck in the in-between time. Today we celebrate the inbreaking of the blessings of the age to come that have come to start at work in us. Paul says it in Ephesians 1, 13 through 14. In him you also, when you heard of the truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is what? the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So we haven't gotten all the possession yet, but it's coming because God's covenant blessing means he leads his people to life from death. How do we follow that path to life from death? We follow God's path to life from death, confessing and listening, counting and looking. In conclusion, let's talk about belief. 
God said, and we've emphasized this over and over and over again in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's talking to the serpent. Adam and Eve are eavesdropping on this. This is the first mention of the gospel, but who is God addressing? He's addressing Satan. And he's saying, you're cursed. So it's not good news to Satan. It's actually a curse on Satan, right? It's going to be enmity, which means mutual hostility between you and a woman. Why the woman? Well, here it is. Between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There are two lines of people. There's the line of the offspring or the seed of the woman, which means the ones that are being restored to true, full humanity. And the line and the seed of the offspring of the ser- seed of the serpent, the Satan, Satan, the evil one. Which one are you? Well, we're all born seed of the serpent, offspring of the serpent. But there's one who was born directly seed of the woman without any messing from the serpent at all. And he crushes the head of the evil one when he gets bit on the cross, which we're going to celebrate here in a minute. His dying and saving for us. And what's it all leading to? Jesus who died that we're going to celebrate here says in Revelation 22, 5, and he was seated on the throne and said, behold, I am right now from where I am making all things new. How? Through the Holy Spirit we just talked about living in you, guaranteeing your inheritance to come. He's renewing you. He's renewing the way you interact with others. He's renewing the world through you, believe it or not. Do you believe in that rescue? If you do, walk confidently now to life in Christ Jesus. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we have received in you and in your word life upon life in Christ Jesus. Help us to see your providential and sovereign grace and mercy in our lives through the person and work of God, the Son, Christ Jesus the Lord, whose incarnation we celebrate in a special way today. Please help us to lift up our hearts to you today. In Jesus' name and for his glory we pray. Amen.